Let's pray before we read. Dear Lord, we've been thinking in this service about how your word is something we need to listen to. Lord, we are so often hard to your word. We don't want to hear it. We're not interested. Sometimes we just don't understand. Thank you that you're a gracious God, that you want us to understand what you're saying, and you can help us. So please soften our hearts, open our ears, give us minds that understand, and please give us changed lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So reading uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, we've been working our way through uh, this beginning part of Genesis, beginning of the Bible really, and we've we've got through days 1 to 6 of God creating the world, and now we're at day 7. So Genesis 2 verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. That's it. We're stopping there. Now, I, I said to someone this week, someone not in church, I was saying, we're, we're going to be looking at the seventh day of creation. Um, and you can maybe guess the first question that they asked me, knowing that we were doing this. The first question was, do we have to keep the Sabbath then? So the Sabbath is, in, in the Old Testament for the Jews, it was their day of rest. It was the seventh day, the Saturday, where, where they had this entire day of rest. And maybe you have this question, you're reading this, great, Phil's going to tell us about this day of rest that we need to have. Do we need to keep this law? Do we not need to keep it? That's maybe the question you're asking. But I want us to slow down. Just looking at these verses, do you see us doing any resting? We're not doing any resting here, are we? Do you see um, some verses about putting on your onesie, having a Netflix sesh, kind of this is how you relax. There's nothing here. Now, we're going to talk about rest later, what it means for us to rest. We're even going to touch on having a day off and that kind of thing. But let's make sure the questions that we're asking are the same questions that the Bible are asking. We've got to say, what is... What are these verses really concerned about? And they seem to be really interested in God resting. That's one of the obvious things. You see God finishing, resting, that kind of thing. So these three little verses are all about God resting, and they're also about perhaps the biggest question we could ever ask. Why does everything exist? That's what these verses are about. Why everything exists? What is God's end game, his goal in making everything. That's what these verses are all about, which is a much bigger question than how we can chill. So this seventh day of creation is the last day in this opening sequence, like the pre-credit sequence of the Bible. Um, We've had days one to six and the music's beginning to swell. We're getting right into it and we're in day seven. This is the climax. But you might have noticed if you've been here over the last few weeks as we've been looking at God creating the world, that we've not actually been told why he's creating everything. We've seen a lot about what he does, what he makes, hearing God say, this is good, this is very good. But we don't know God's end game yet. What's he doing it all for? Well, unsurprisingly, you find out the end game at the end, day seven. Which means on this last day, we're going to find out God's kind of theory of everything. His big why I'm doing it all. Which is big stuff for us in our lives. 
Now in these verses, three things basically happen, which is convenient because we have three verses. First thing we see is that God finishes. You see this in verse 1. It's pretty simple. You can probably come up with the same points that I came up with. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, finished, in all their vast array. It's pretty straightforward. God completed what he started. Go back to 1 verse 1, back over the page. We have the kind of start of the whole thing. 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 1 verse 1, the heavens and the earth. 2 verse 1 is like a little bookend. Thus the heavens and the earth, there it is again, are completed. What I want us to do is picture, at this point in this creation story, a pair of hands covered in dust. The hands of a man who's been working. He's been building brick by brick, piece by piece. He dreamt up the plans, he's designed it, and he's built it. And this builder gets the job done completely, and so he puts down his tools. It's finished. Now we get so frustrated with unfinished building work. I live on a seventh floor flat, and all you can see is cranes everywhere. And we get annoyed. You know, you've maybe got a neighbor who's got some building work, and they were meant to be finished three months ago. HS2 or HS3 or whichever one it is, it's delayed by another three years. Britain is plagued by unfinished building work. But God is not a frustrated or a frustrating builder. The word that you see gets repeated, the words you see repeated here are all about being finished, completed. At verse 1, it's completed. Verse 2, God's finished the work. Verse 3, at the very end, at the work that, um, of creating that he had done. So these repeated words tell us, get the picture. It's finished, completed, it's done, it's all over. And I'm rubbish at finishing something that I've finished. Okay, so for example, a sermon. I've written my sermon, but I haven't quite finished my sermon. So I go back and I do a little bit more and I do a little, bo- little bit more. It kind of happened this week, I'll be honest. Or you re- redecorate your kitchen and you stand back and you think it's done, but then you notice the bit in the corner that you missed. And so you have to go back and you do a little bit more and you add and you add. But there are no corners that God missed. There are no little bits that he needs to go back to to touch up. It's done. Every last bit, all in their vast array. Why does this matter to us? Well, it tells us that in a world, that this world and all that's in it are not in some perpetual state of change. Our world does not need to be reimagined and rethought and redesigned by us. And actually, we've embraced a view of the world that's, that's really destabilizing has its roots in a guy called Hegel, if you're interested in that kind of thing. But this is a philosophy that our society lives by. Basically, the view of life goes something like this. The cosmos, everything in creation, is in this, on this constant journey of change towards getting better, towards becoming more and more what it's destined to be. Things collide, things go wrong, but when they do, we emerge more advanced, better, more who we should be. Which sounds kind of exciting, doesn't it? We move forward, we emerge from difficult things, more and more what we're destined to be. We progress, we change, we never stand still. We reinvent ourselves and the world around us to make it what we want it to be. And yet, never standing still is exhausting. A world that's in perpetual motion and change and still hasn't reached its goal is a tiring and difficult place to live in, isn't it? 
And then this seeps into our sense of self. You have got to realize who you are. You've got to grow yourself, create yourself. There's no kind of fixed point that defines your identity. Everything's fluid, everything's moving. So fashion moves, you've got to move with it. Technology moves, you move with it. Careers move, you've got to keep moving. Morality moves, it changes, you've got to keep up with it. We define who we are. We define what matters in life. We define even what truth is. And so everything's kind of undergoing this constant redesigning. And we're told that this is going to move us forward, but actually I think, honestly, most of us just feel pretty left behind. So to our culture of constant change, redefinition, fluidity, and the pressure to recreate yourself... Genesis 2 verse 1 is like stepping off the boat onto some dry ground. God has completed creation. He's not creating anymore. It's finished. Now Genesis 3 comes along and sin corrupts everything. So there's redeeming work to do. God is at work saving the world and sustaining it by his providence. But while the world needs fixing and God is doing that, The world is fundamentally finished. If God's finished designing humankind, we don't need to redesign and redefine ourselves. And in our lives, and you might feel this this afternoon, we experience all sorts of change. Everything feels like it's changing. But in all that does move and change in life, this is good news. This provides something solid. God's made it all. He knows what he's doing, and it's finished. Which makes us start asking then different questions about our lives and our world. What does God say? Who does God say I am? Who who does he want me to be? What is God's purpose for this world? We don't need to create new meanings or new worlds or new truth or new morals. God's already done that, and it's very good. It's finished. That's the first thing we see. God finishes. Next up. God sits down. Verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So, on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And where does God sit down in that verse, Phil? You've made this up. This is tied up in the idea of rest. The Hebrew kind of going on behind it is this idea of Sabbath, rest, Sabbath rest. And we're going to have to um, really delve deep into what this rest means. We're going to have to do a bit of work, okay? So I hope you're ready. But it's worth it to really get into what does it mean for God to rest. Go back to our builder. He's, he's dreamt up, he's designed, and he's finished his building. What does he do now he's finished? He goes inside. He pulls up a seat. He sits down. And he enjoys it. He looks around at this building he's made and he rests from making and he's ready to start living in his building. You might know the feeling. You move into a new place, a new flat, whatever it is, and perhaps you kid out your flat uh, with a nice lot of freshly bought kind of Swedish furniture. And the boxes arrive and if you're anything like my wife, you've got a floor plan already drawn out and you know where everything's going to go. And then it begins. You're armed with a 
all-purpose magic L stick known as an Allen key. And you get to work bringing order out of disorder, filling an empty flat with Sweden's finest. And hours later, and many cups of tea later, and maybe arguments later, the smell of fresh-ish wood fills the air. And you're finished. And what do you do? You sit down. But that sitting down is not just, oh, I'm stopping work. It's a, it's a satisfied sitting down. It's you sitting down to begin life in your now furnished flat. That's, that's your rest from your work of getting it ready. You rest by now living in it, right? And that's what's going on when it says that God rested from all his work of creating. He's not only stopping created work, he's now, he's settling in to the cosmos he has made for himself. Now I reckon that most of us think of God's relationship with his creation a bit like our relationship with a snow globe. You know those little things you get at Christmas with a little thing inside and you shake it and it looks pretty. And we think God's made for himself a kind of snow globe world. It's beautiful, it's really intricate, it's full of detail. And God essentially sits on the outside, and he looks at his little snow globe creation. And he likes looking at it, but that's basically all he can do. Creation is not God's snow globe. It's his house. It's a humongous temple house for God to dwell in, to enjoy, and to rule over. And so just like when you finish putting your billy bookcases up, you sit down and you inhabit your flat. God finishes mountain ranges and oceans. He creates tenants for his house, humans. And then he sits down to rest in it. Now that might feel like quite a lot to get out of this verse. So let me show you some other things from the rest of the Bible that shed light back on Genesis 2. Where else do we get God... Resting and living on earth. The temple. Okay? God's Old Testament people, God lived on earth in this house, a temple. So we need a bit of a sense of the story. So we've got God here resting, living in the earth. We'll get back to that in a moment. But then it goes wrong in Genesis 3. We get sin. So God no longer rests in his creation with his people. So God then kicks off this redemption story. He makes for himself a new people, the Israelites. And he now wants to rest and live with his new people. The land, the promised land, isn't some kind of snow globe to God that he's going to look at. He wants to be there, rest there with his people, just like his creation. And so what we have is King Solomon, who builds for God a house. That's what it's called in the Bible, a temple, where God will rest with his people in the land. And actually the designing of this temple is a lot like a mini world, a mini cosmos. And so they finish the temple and here's what happens. When it's ready for God to live in, listen to this. This is in 1 Kings. On the, on the seventh month, seventh month, they bring something very special into this house, temple for God. On the seventh, they bring what symbolizes God's presence. They bring in the ark. And then, God's presence fills the temple house they've made for God. 
On the seventh, God rests in his temple house, in his land with his people. Sound a lot like Genesis 2 on the seventh day? The temple is meant to be a little taste of getting back to Genesis 2, rest. One more place I want to take you, and I'd like you to turn there to to Isaiah 66 on page 754. Isaiah 66, page 754. And this passage really picks up on creation, rest, house language. Isaiah 66, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. Okay, so God rests in the temple house. But then God wants to make something clear to God, his people. The, this, this temple isn't, isn't really where he can truly live. You can't keep God in this little house. That's a little picture. You can't keep God in a building. So God says, let me show you where I really rest. And he describes, heaven is his throne and the earth has his footstool. Where is this house, he says, you're going to build for me to rest in, verse 1? Where will my resting place be? He says, no, 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 God says, I don't rest in a building. Where do I rest? Well, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God made the earth so he could put his feet up in it. A footstool, you know, you sit down and you have a little poof or a little thing that you put. You put up your feet, you relax, you rest. And God is saying he made the earth as a place for him to rest his feet, as it were. God doesn't have feet, he's spirit. But you see the picture. So that sheds light then back on Genesis 2. On the seventh day of creation, God takes his seat, or maybe we should say with that, he puts up his feet in the world he's created for himself. He rests. Which means the world doesn't belong to us. The world wasn't primarily made for you and me. It's God's. He's made it for him to sit down in and enjoy and inhabit and rest. Which then makes sense of the third and final thing that God does. God takes center stage. So back to Genesis 2. And we're getting to the end game, okay? We're getting to the end game, the big question, why has God made everything? And we're building up the picture And here we get God taking center stage, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So he's saying because God rested from all his work, he now does two things. He, He blessed the seventh day and makes it holy. What does that mean? Well, God has already blessed some other things in Genesis 1 he's been making. When he made um, creatures, he blessed them. When he made humans, he blessed them. So what does it mean for God to bless here, not creatures, not humans, but a day 
That's a new thing. We've not had God bless a day yet. When God blesses something, he's saying, I am for this thing. I want it to flourish. I'm going to pour out my blessing on it. I'm, I'm going to do good to it. So this day of all the days is God's day that he is for. What else happens? Uh, God uh, blessed the seventh day and made it holy. What does that mean? Well, when something's made holy, it is dedicated to God. And by the way, this is the first thing in the entire Bible that gets called holy. A day gets called holy. Which means that this seventh day is for praise and worship to God. This day is set aside for God. The world we just saw is God's temple house to live in. Well, the seventh day is God's temple in time to be worshipped in. Last little detail to notice. We've had a very regular pattern with the days of creation. What do we normally get at the end of the day? Have a look at 1 verse 31. On the same page, God saw all that he'd made and it was very good and here's how every day closes. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. End of the day. Verse 3 of chapter 2, do you see that? Ah, it's not there. That should make us stand up and go, ah, there isn't the ending of this day. This seventh day doesn't seem to finish. The seventh day of rest for God seems to still be going. So let me bring this together. God has begun a time, this Sabbath rest, which he says is holy, which means it's dedicated to his glory, all of creation to worship and praise him. God has taken his seat, and just like would have happened in the temple, worship begins, holy to him. Now this is where we begin to see God's end game. This is where we get the Bible's answer to the big question, why does everything exist in the first place? God created everything for himself, holy to him, for his praise and glory. God created a temple world for him to live in and be worshipped in, holy to him. That's God's end game in making it all. So let's go back to our picture of a builder. What exactly has he finished? What was his end game? Well, this builder has been making for himself a theater. His aim was to build the most beautiful, majestic theater you've ever seen. He's designed it, he's built it, and now he's finished it. He's finished putting in the lights that beam across the auditorium and throw lights onto the stage. He's finished the backdrops of lush forests and surging seas and high mountains and warm houses. He's finished the stage where the performance will happen. Not only that, he's written the script, he's hired the actors, ready to act out his masterpiece. The stage is set for the show to begin. And he calls action. And then he himself takes center stage amongst the company of actors. Now I want to see that that is what's going on here with God. The first, first six days we have witnessed the master craftsman at work, building himself this temple to be worshipped in, this theater to show his glory, a place for him to rest in and in which the drama of life will be played out for his glory, holy to him. We've seen God put the lights in the sky 
to shed light on the stage of the earth. We've seen him create the most stunning backdrops imaginable of mountain ranges and oceans and deserts and gardens. And we've seen him create the ensemble chorus of birds and animals and fish and tiny bugs and stars that sing. We've seen God create actors for his great performance. We've seen him give them, give them stage directions. Be made in my image. Worship me. Fill the earth. Subdue it. And then on this seventh day, when God calls, be holy, we're to hear him calling, action. As he takes center stage in all time, this Sabbath day, and all creation exists, holy to him. And all week I've had this annoying Coldplay song going on my head. Look at the stars, see how they shine for you. They don't shine for you and me. They shine for God. It's not about us. We're the crowning glory of his creation, day six. But day seven is God's end game. That humanity and everything else should exist in this holy time. In the theater of his glory to praise him. That's the end game. Except that we live as if someone else takes center stage. You and me. Adam and Eve in chapter 3, we're going to see in a few weeks' time, try, try to take center stage. And so creation ceased to be this place where God could rest with his people. And you and I still live day after day as if the end game is me. The goal of all creation is me. The center stage to life and time itself is us, humanity, what we can achieve. We just can't see past ourselves. So the question becomes, well, how do we get back to day seven? How can we get back to the end game, what God intended all along? Because actually the end game sounds brilliant. You get a completed creation, no brokenness, that sounds good. We get God resting on earth, not a snow globe relationship, but him with us. And we get God taking center stage. Everything is holy to him. Time itself is for him. That's how it should be. How do we get back to day seven? Well, basically the whole Bible is about that. (laughs) That's the Bible story. So we're going to jump forward to the New Testament where we see how we get back to day seven. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter three, which is on page 1203. And this is the last place we're going to be turning. Hebrews chapter 3 on page 1203. And Hebrews makes some direct references back to Genesis 2. So that should make us sit up and listen to it. Hebrews 3, page 1203. So we saw, um, didn't we, that in the Old Testament, God rested in the temple. But where was the temple? Well, it was in the promised land. And Psalm 95, which we looked at earlier in the service, gets quoted by Hebrews. And and Psalm 95 talks about the land as the rest that God's people can enjoy. So let's read um, again from Psalm 95, which is in Hebrews 3, verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, 
If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. When your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They do not know my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. Notice whose rest it is, by the way. My rest. It's always referred to as God's rest in the Bible. So this is the rest that God started on day seven of creation, Genesis 2. And then the promised land was God's little theater that he made where he would take center stage again, be with his people, and Israel would live holy to him for his glory. Brilliant. The end game restored. Day seven, we're back to it with the Israelites. Not so fast. Verse 11, it didn't happen. I declared on oath in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. The people of Israel didn't listen to God. They still wanted to take center stage in the theater of God's glory in the land. So a whole generation died and didn't make it into the land. No day seven rest. God wasn't done. Hebrews tells us that the promise of entering God's rest, getting back to day seven, that promise still stands. Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So it's saying that through faith in Jesus, we now can enter into God's day seven rest. And Hebrews actually goes back and quotes Genesis 2, except it goes, oh, somewhere in the Bible it says, it's Genesis 2, mate, that's where it is. God rested, it's saying, from all his created work, and, and it says that rest still goes on. God is still resting, and there's a way for us to get in on that rest. Let's read about it in verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's us. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Genesis 2, day 7. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Saying that day 7 rest never ended for God. He still rests from creating the world. He's not doing that now. And we can enter God's day seven Sabbath rest. And we can rest from our works like he does from his. So what is this rest? It's the new creation. It's the new creation. It is the renewed theater of God's glory that he's going to remake in the future. The end game of redemption is that God will restore everything back to day seven, but better. He will renew, we're told, the heavens and the earth. He will come down, Revelation tells us, and rest with his people again. And he will be their God and take center stage. It will be a holy day where all things and all people worship God. That's what holy means. God will finish his new creation. God will sit. He will rest with us 
and God will take center stage. That's the end game. Not only of the six days of creation, but of all of history. That's why God created everything and that's why God will recreate everything. To finish, to sit and be with us and to be worshipped. Now the big call of Hebrews 4 is this. Are you going to be there? Are you going to enter God's Sabbath rest? Because you can. If you want to know, Phil, how do we keep the Sabbath? Primarily, we do this. We put our faith in Jesus who came to rescue us. We put our faith in him to forgive us and to bring us to God. And we keep our faith in him to the very end. We, Psalm 95, listen to God's word, his call to live for him, and we keep listening to the very end. And when we do that and keep hold of Jesus and keep listening to him, we will enter day seven Sabbath rest with God. Picture the Israelites stood on the edge of the promised land, their little rest. And Moses called them to choose life, to choose rest. Go into the land. Trust God. You can go in and experience that rest. And as we stand on the edge of eternity and the promise of eternal rest, God calls us today to choose life, to choose God's eternal rest. Keep listening to Jesus. So today, I want to ask you, will you give up center stage, center stage to your life in this world and give it back to God where it belongs? I went to the theater the other day and the writer and director of the show was there and she did a little announcement kind of thing at the beginning. Now imagine one of the actors coming from behind and then running on stage to the writer and director, pushing her off the stage. And going, I wrote the play. I made this theatre. Clap for me. That's what we've done with God. I find my own constant need for applause in life actually quite tiring. I have to keep performing. I have to keep center stage. I have to keep creating new things and doing things to impress people and to validate who I am. I live with the spotlight on me. I live center stage day after day and I fall flat on my face day after day in front of everybody. And it's exhausting. And it's Genesis 2 tells us that is not how you are made to live. The end game is God center stage. And so Christ stepped back onto the stage of the earth. God himself, the Son of God, came and he came to tired, center stage obsessed people like us. And he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, come rest in me. I finished creating everything. You don't have to create this world in your life. I finished saving you. That's what Jesus said on the cross. It's 
finished. You don't have to save yourself. Stop trying. And he says, I've taken center stage. You don't have to. Jesus died for us. His body lay in the ground on the seventh day of the week and he rose to new life to make a way for you and me to enter God's rest. So today, hear his voice. Don't reject it. Come to Jesus. Obey and find sweet and eternal rest. And this, by the way, is why we should have a day of rest. So let's think about that as we finish. We should, I think, have a day of rest, not because we're under the old covenant Sabbath law, which had, was punishable by death if you didn't keep it. That's not our code anymore. That's not the basis on which we relate to God. It's through Christ that we relate to God. We rest in Jesus, hoping for the new creation. That's how we keep the Sabbath law primarily. But we should have a day of rest like the Sabbath pattern that God established in creation because it's the one day where we get closest to eternity. When I was best man for a friend at his wedding, one of the coolest things about it was when we got to do our taster session of all the different meals that we could have had at the wedding. And we went to this beautiful place, this wood-paneled room, and they brought out all the different meals we could select from. Now, it was nice. It wasn't the wedding banquet, but it was a pretty good foretaste of it. That should be our day of rest together. So think of your day of rest like this. It's a day for you to enjoy finished work. But not your finished work. I think many of us don't rest because we haven't finished our work. We go, oh, I can't have a day of rest because I've still got work to do. That's not how biblical rest works. Who has finished his work? God is always referred to as God's rest. So we can rest each week, not because we've finished creating, but because God's finished creating. You get to say, one day a week, it's finished. Even if it's not finished, it's finished. Because God's finished creating and providing for you, so you can stop and rest. So don't wait beg of you, especially in the busyness and the pressure of London, don't wait until you've finished all your work to rest because you probably won't ever end up resting. Rest because God's finished his work. That's the first thing. Second thing, your day of rest should be a day to sit with God. You are not stuck in some little snow globe to him where he's at a kind of distance from you. By God's spirit, he's present with you. He set up home with us, Jesus says in John. So enjoy God in your day of rest. Be near him. Get your Bible out and indulge in your Bible. Enjoy words like, come to me and find rest. Don't you want to hear that on your day off? As a foretaste of God's rest with you in eternity, stop working. Enjoy God's nearness. Third thing about our day of rest, it should be a day blessed and holy to God. It makes a huge amount of sense, if you can, to make Sunday your day of rest. You don't have to, but it makes a lot of sense. And we live in a country where for a lot of us, a lot of the time we can. Not always, but we can. Why should we do that? Well, because like the Holy Sabbath, Sunday's the day when the church gathers. a day of holy to God, to worship him. For one day we get to stop scurrying around. I don't know if you've ever pictured church like this, but... 
It's a day when we get to stand together in the theatre of God's glory again. His word before us, singing, praying. He takes centre stage on this day of all days, doesn't he? When we stop working and worship together like we are today, it's the closest we get to that eternal Sabbath rest. So I want to ask, why wouldn't you want to enjoy that once a week? If you can, why wouldn't you? Let's do that together. One day we're going to live in this eternal seventh day. We're going to be surrounded by unimaginable splendor in the theater of the new creation. And we're going to join with the planets and the stars and all creatures and the choir of the redeemed. And we're going to worship our maker and our redeemer. That's our rest in Jesus. So let's pray and praise him for this. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you on this day gathered with your people. We come weary, burdened, tired out from the pressure to create and do and impress you and impress others and be center stage. We are so sorry for thinking that the end game of our existence is us and our glory. It's not, it's you. And we want to admit that together. You deserve all the glory because you made everything. And we praise you for Jesus Christ, who came for us to give us rest, who came to give us eternal rest. Thank you that he died and he rose and he ascended and he's coming back. And that one day we will fully enjoy stopping our hard labor and worshiping you forever in your new creation. Lord, keep us going. Help us to keep each other going, calling each other today, today, today to hear your voice and to enter that rest. And Lord, now as we sing, lift our hearts in worship that even now, as your gathered people, with you present with us, we would taste something now of what is to come. Amen.